Two weeks ago, we began looking at this concept of trying to figure out what do we mean by that word gospel. And in Romans 1.16, one of the earliest texts I memorized as a young preacher, I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation. That's how important this word is. And, and one of the things I wanted to do two weeks ago, though, was to back up and help us realize that the word gospel actually has several different aspects or components to it. I, I didn't know really what word to use, but, but there's more to the gospel than just one aspect of it. First of all, is the word itself simply means good news. And the gospel is very much like you're watching the television at night and the news comes on and they say, breaking news. That's the gospel, except it's good news, instead of what oftentimes we see on television. Then there's the response to the gospel. Uh, both Peter and Paul will talk about how that people need to decide whether they want to obey the gospel. In other words, this good news elicits a response. You can either choose to believe it and act accordingly, or you can choose not to believe it and live with the consequences. But there has to be a response to the gospel. And then depending on how you respond, if you respond in a positive way, then the result is that there are benefits and blessings that come your way. Now, it's very important we differentiate between these three. I grew up thinking the gospel was the response. I remember being taught from an early age, here's the gospel, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. The five steps in the gospel plan of salvation. That's the response to the gospel. And oftentimes we would begin with the response without really telling someone the good news. And if you don't begin with the good news, you're getting the horse behind the cart, not in front of it. And so we have got to focus on what is the gospel. And, and the definition I used two weeks ago is this. It's good news that changes the world and people's lives in particular. It is so important that you look at this good news and says how I respond to it is going to change my life. And it will change it if you really understand it in a profound way. We're going to come back to Isaiah 49 multiple times. It is the first, at least one of the first announcements of the gospel. You turn over to these beautiful songs of the coming servant of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and with him comes this good news. You who bring good news. In the Septuagint, the word there is gospel, euangelion. The good news. And those of you who bring it to Zion, go up on a high mountain and announce it. Those of you who bring good news to Jerusalem, you lift up your voice and shout it. There's good news. And notice the good news. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. I don't know that I can say it better than what Isaiah, through the Spirit, said. And so when you turn to the New Testament and I put up a bullseye, because in the New Testament, it kind of expands from the center. Begins with Jesus. I mean, if you want to narrow the gospel down to one word, that gospel 
is Jesus. Which is why Philip, when he got up into the chariot with the eunuch, began at Isaiah 53 and preached to him Jesus. Now, I need us to stop right there today and ask a very simple question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Now, I suspect if we were to just casually begin to throw this out, a lot of us would say, well, of course, he's the Son of God. But if I were to dig a little bit deeper and ask you, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure we would all be on the same page. I remember obeying the gospel when I was 11 years old. The minister asked me in the water, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? I said, I do. I did as much as an 11-year-old could understand that phrase. However, I remember in different stages as I get, got older realizing, whoa, wait, wait a minute, that's what that means? And I continue to do that even at my age today, realizing there's far more to this than I ever realized. Now, it didn't invalidate my baptism. One of the things I want to remind people is that we're always growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our growth in that doesn't negate where we were when we first responded. But at the same time, we need to realize that, that the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the more profound effect it has on our lives. If you turn to the New Testament, you begin to hear responses to who Jesus is in some fascinating ways. Here's John chapter 4. This is the woman at the well. Uh, you're probably familiar. Jesus is going through Samaria. He stops at a well. A Samaritan woman. First of all, she's Samaritan. They didn't like the Jews. Jews didn't like them. She's a woman. Women tended not to inter interact with men in the public. Yet here is Jesus, a Jewish male, interacting with her. In the conversation, she finally says, Listen, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. If you had stopped in the first century and asked everyone in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, with a Jewish background, who are you waiting for? And the answer would have been the same. We're waiting for the Messiah. John goes ahead and translates it into Greek, the Christos. That's who we're waiting for. He's the one who's going to come. And so if you had talked to people in different settings, they would have referred to him in different ways. Again, Messiah. That comes from the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one. We're waiting for the one who has been anointed by God. The word Christos, our word Christ, means the exact same thing in Greek. It's not Jesus' last name. Okay? I know a lot of us growing up, you know, Jesus Christ. That's his first name, that's his last name. No. That, that word Christos, again, means anointed one. But the best word I know, and translations are finally starting to catch up with the original language, the word anointed one simply means king. That's who you anoint. You know, Samuel went and anointed Saul. He became Israel's king. He went and anointed David. He became Israel's king. I mean, the anointed one is king. And so when we talk about Jesus 
Christos, we're talking about King Jesus. We need to get that in our mind. It's kind of hard. It's a transition I'm still working on. Which leads us to another phrase, which is son of David, which is exactly that concept. You see, you go to 2 Samuel and you have God speaking through Nathan, saying to David, I'm going to take one of your descendants, place him on your throne, and his kingdom will never end. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, king. A king is coming. But it's this fourth term that I think sometimes confuses us. And I think we, we don't realize how different first century Jews responded to it as opposed to the way we respond to it. And that phrase is son of God. We hear son of God and we immediately step back and realize we've got 2,000 years of Christian history. We think of the second member of the Godhead. We think of the very one that, that Mark talked about who is in the form of God. Would it surprise you that in the first century that's at least initially not what the people would have heard? You see, in the first century, that phrase, Son of God, goes back to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, David writes this, this royal psalm. And, and the whole point of the royal psalm is to designate the king of Israel as God's representative on earth, God's adoptive son. Okay, you need to let that sink in. Psalm 2, a psalm that they would have sung in the synagogue, sung there at the temple. It's a song that calls the king of Israel the son of God, but not in the sense that we think of Jesus. He's representative. He's adoptive. Notice the very language. I have installed my king. There it is. On Zion, my holy mountain, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I become your father. In other words, as you have been established as king, I will make you my son and I will be your father. But not in the sense that we think of it. Which is why when you get to the New Testament... You have people proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, not the way we proclaim it. And by the way, I'm not sure I was there when I was 11 years old. For instance, notice Matthew 12. First of all, you get this language of Son of David. Jesus is there, a man who's mute and deaf comes up, he's demon-possessed, Jesus heals him, and their response is, could this be the Son of David? Now, what do they mean by that? Well, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christos? Could this be the Son of God, the King of Israel? You get that exact language in John 1.49, Nathaniel. We know him as Bartholomew. Bartholomew is brought to Jesus. When he gets there, Jesus begins to talk to him. He, he compliments him when he shows up. He says, how do you even know who I am? I saw you under the fig tree. And the response is, Rabbi, you're the son of God. Now you need to realize something. He's not thinking of, like what we're thinking of, the second member of the Godhead. They didn't even have a concept of the Trinity at that time. And so there, he, he's, he's just simply saying, well, notice what he says. He explains it. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's what he meant by that phrase. 
Matthew 16, 16. And I know this is a tough one. Because we think here's Peter for the first time and Peter's getting it. Is he? Who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But can I ask you a question? If he really thought he was God in the flesh, incarnate, would he have four verses, five verses later, took him aside and rebuked him? I mean, do you rebuke God? And the answer is no, if you know he's God. I mean, listen, I wouldn't rebuke my dad. Because I know what would have happened to me. We're not talking, by the way, Mother's Day, I wouldn't have rebuked my mother either. In fact, I would have probably rebuked my dad before I rebuked my mother. I remember one time mom was disciplining my little brother and I made the stupid mistake. I was a seventh grader. I told my brother to run. I did. I said, run. Which mother didn't chase my brother, she chased me. And so I thought, I know where I'm going to go. I run up the stairs. I go in my bedroom. I climbed under the bed because I'm thinking, Mother can't get me here. She came up there, tried to get me, couldn't get me. She left. I thought, victory, until she came back with the broom. (laughs) And let me tell you, a broomstick will force you out from under a bed. You get jabbed enough. I mean, you don't rebuke your mom. Take my word for it. Peter rebuked Jesus. King? Yeah. Messiah? Yeah. Son of God like we do now? Not sure. Walk with me. When Jesus came into the world, the world saw Jesus as simply another human, not God in the flesh. They called him Son of God, but it's just used as a term to refer to kingship, not to sonship. And yet Jesus began the amazing process of giving people glimpses. Just little glimpses, little whispers of who he really was. You see it, for instance, when he's born. Matthew, here's Joseph. Joseph thinks Mary's pregnant by someone else. He's about to divorce her. He lays down to go to bed. He has a dream. An angel comes to him, tells him not to be afraid to take it. Because notice, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we so often read that, and we just like, oh, okay, yeah, makes sense. Put yourself in, Dave, in, in, in Joseph's view, uh, uh, shoes. I mean, his, look at it from his viewpoint. First of all, an angel appears to you. I don't know how many of y'all have had a recent appearance by an angel, but I believe that'd shake me up. And not only that, but then you get this explanation for us, you know, as to why Mary is pregnant is pregnant and it has something to do with the Holy Spirit of God and if I was Joseph I would wake up scratching my head then do what God told me to do but I'd still be scratching my head what in the world does this mean you get the same thing from Mary I mean by the way here is your God by the way is the whisper and then you go to Mary and you have Gabriel the Holy Spirit will come on you Mary said no wait a minute I'm a virgin how's this going to happen doesn't make sense to me. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And once again, I suspect Mary's going, what? And God whispers again, and Jesus, here is your God. 
And you see this play out through the Gospels over and over as God is basically saying, can you connect the dots? You know, we all probably as kids loved connecting the dots. I know I did. And, and here's God saying, can you connect the dots? I love this song by Mark Lowry, which we, I love to hear it at Christmas time. I love to sing it. Mary, did you know, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. But Lowry asked truthfully, Mary, did you know? Because I doubt seriously she understood the full extent of it. At least not at that moment. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus had been looking at the miracles. I love the way the chosen, and by the way, we're going to be showing... Chosen season two, starting the first Sunday night in June. But in the Chosen, they really look at Nicodemus as he's analyzing the miracles. All because of what John 3, 2 says. He comes to Jesus and notice, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Notice this language, who has come from God. Not is God, but who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Not if he was God, but God was not with him. So Nicodemus is connecting the dots, and God's whispering in his ear, here is your God, but Nicodemus is not there yet. Not by a long shot. You go to the apostles. And Stan's helped me with this one probably as much as anything with referencing the Old Testament passage. The apostles on the Sea of Galilee, storm comes up. Waves are about to sink the ship. They wake Jesus up. Lord, don't you care that we perish? And what does Jesus do? He gets up. He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the waves. Winds die down. Waves come out. And all at once, they look at one another and go, what kind of man is this? I mean, these are the apostles. But they're trying to figure out what kind of man is this that the winds and the waves obey him. And of course, if they had just remembered the song they used to sing, Psalm 107, beginning in verse 28, Then they cried out to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the God of Israel in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He, Yahweh, stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed by His power. Are you going to connect the dots? Do you see who it is in the boat with you? Here's your God. But the whisper may be too faint. Jesus heals a man, but before healing him, he's the one dropped through the roof, you know, when Jesus is in the middle of teaching. And he heals a man, but before he heals him, he forgives him his sins. The Pharisees ask a question. Now, the question they ask is legit. Their conclusions are not. Notice the language. Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Why? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's almost as if Jesus looks at the man he's forgiven and winks at him and whispers, here's your God. If you know who's in your midst. John 2, 16. Jesus goes to the, to the temple. And John's going to play on this theme all the way through. I, I love this theme. But, but he goes to the temple, and when he gets there, he sees what's going on in the temple courts, those who are selling doves and other animals. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. 
And while there are people who will say, well, Jews in the first century called God Father, not the way Jesus did. There was something about the way Jesus addressed God as his Father that whispered to everyone, here is your God. And we all know that there are certain individuals that have a relationship that makes all the difference in the world. I tell people all the time, if you come to my house, there's only two people beside me and June who can walk in my house, go straight to the refrigerator, and open the door without me and June going, what are you doing? And one of them's named Rob, and one of them's named Kyle. Well, their wives, Ken, and their kids, my grandkids, Ken, as well. So I'll add a few more to that list. But y'all know what I'm talking about. There's, you know, your house. I mean, you know, this is dad's house. Well, this is actually Gigi's house. But anyway, no one else can do it unless you are a child of Gigi. John 5, 17, in his defense, Jesus had healed a man who had been a paralytic waiting at a pool. And Jesus, they, they said to him, you've healed on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I am too And so he whispers, here is your God. And I love what happens when you get to John 14. In John 14, Jesus is giving his last talk. Here's this last few moments to really try to teach his apostles who he is and what he's doing and what's fixing to happen to them. And of course, it's like drinking water out of fire hose. I mean, anybody who has ever studied John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 and looked at all of that teaching of Jesus and trying to figure out how in the world does a fisherman like Peter even begin to comprehend what he said? And the answer is he couldn't. It would be the Holy Spirit later that would help him. But he begins by saying, my father's house has many rooms. We're all familiar with that text. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And notice the response of of Philip. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. In other words, connecting the dots, getting a little bit closer. You keep talking about this Father of yours. You keep praying to this Father of yours. I mean, you've got this special relationship to this Father of yours. Show him to us, and that will be enough. And look at Jesus' response. Don't you know me, Philip? Excuse me? Don't you know me? Even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Believe me when I say I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And Philip's sitting there scratching his head, and and, and Peter's sitting there scratching his head, John's scratching his head, all of these guys are scratching their head, while Jesus whispers, here's your God. And it's not until this happens that the whisper goes to a shout. That it's no longer something that you've got to connect the dots because now you see the whole image clearly. And you see that with John right off the bat. I love the way that John sees it. Peter and John, when they hear that the tomb is empty, they run to the tomb. John gets there first. Peter shows up. Peter goes in. But Peter's still scratching his head. But look at what John said about himself. Finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. And for the first time, the text says, he saw and he believed. He had finally put all the dots together. This is God. A week later, you have, here is your God. A week later, you have Doubting Thomas, 
who had said, hey, unless I you know, see the scars, put my hands in the wounds, I'll never believe. And, and then Jesus shows up and says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And notice what he says, my Lord and my God. It's no longer a whisper. It's a shout. Here is my God. What's amazing is years later, and I mean years later, John's writing his gospel. And he's had time to connect all the dots. Holy Spirit, I'm sure, helped him. And he now knows who Jesus is. Jesus is not just the son of Mary. Jesus is not just a descendant of David. Jesus is not the son of God, Psalm 2. He is the son of God, the second member of the Godhead incarnate. And so John begins this gospel. Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark starts with Jesus already in his 30s. Matthew and Luke take it back to his birth. John comes along and says, let me tell you, in the beginning was the Word. Before he ever even became Jesus, he was called the Logos of God. And then notice the rest of the text. He was with God. And then the most profound statement. If we just could let it sink in. And I know you may be thinking, Les, I've, I've understood this all of my life. If you have, God bless you. My journey's taken a little bit longer. But this word was God. And all things were made by him, nothing was made that has been made without him, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and he became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, and all at once John shouting to the top of his voice, here is your God. And what's fascinating is Paul comes along and picks up on everything John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And exactly what Mark said this morning around the communion table, who being in very nature, who being in configuration, see Mark, I was listening, who being in configuration, God did not consider equality with God, and he's exactly right. That word there in the Greek means to hold on to, to grasp, to, to, to not want to let go. And yet that was, wasn't the way Jesus was. He didn't use it to his own advantage. He was God. And then he goes on to say, and all things were made by him, Colossians 1.16, for in him, that is Jesus, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. And so here's John saying, guess who Jesus is? Paul saying, amen to everything you say. And boy, in him was life. Look at 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, going all the way like John did to at the very beginning but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus King Jesus who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel I mean you, you begin to look at it and go wow John and Paul must have talked talked to each other yeah I suspect they did or at least they got their same source the Holy Spirit of God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us or as Mark said this morning, he reconfigured and took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. But it's the Hebrew writer that I find most amazing. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews is unknown. A lot of people used to think Paul wrote it. I don't think even possible that Paul could have written it. I think it was written way after Paul had died. 
But you turn over to, to the book of Hebrews, and this author had gotten it. Maybe a disciple of Paul, maybe a disciple of John. But he begins his, his great book by saying the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, and he holds everything together by his powerful word. And you begin to think, wow, you've been reading both John and Paul, perhaps. But he goes on in chapter 2, and it's chapter 2 that's so astonishing. Because it's chapter 2 that you have to understand the why. Why would God leave heaven, empty himself of his glory, take a new form, reconfigure as a human being, and come to the earth? And the Hebrew writer said, I can tell you why. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy... He wants us to be a part of the same family. He's a son by birth, and we're sons and daughters by adoption. But we're part of the same family. And since the children have flesh and blood, he had to share. Because only in flesh and blood could he defeat Satan, taking from him the very power of death itself. And overcame it when he came out of that grave shouting, Here is your God. And then I love as he comes to the end of the chapter for this reason. He had to be made like us, fully human. Why? In order that he might become a merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. In other words, when he went and made atonement, he did it because he understands us. And it's that part that gives me hope. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, here is your God. That's why it's called good news. Now, you may have already believed all of this, and you have God bless you for being there. For others of us, it's probably still a journey we're on. And we want to invite you that if you're just beginning this journey, and you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, join the journey with us. And if your faith has led you to the point of where you need to make a response, the response is simple. Faith and baptism brings you to God. If we can help you in any way in that journey, why don't you come right now as together we stand and sing.